Hey, how are you, everyone? Having some technical difficulties and some other issues. Um, I'm having a problem with my right ear, and uh, it's a bit concerning. I've been uh, dealing with it for the last couple of days, but uh, anyway, uh, it'll be fine, and uh, I'm just going to have to uh, push through it. So uh, anyway, uh, not a not a good start to my uh, my Thursday, and especially with the show. Um, okay, so anyway, um, so, uh, today I have something, um, something interesting to, um, to look at, and I'm sorry about this, but as I said, I'm having a problem with that ear, so, um, any, anyway, let, let's get into it. Uh, so, I have um, planned today um, to uh, talk to you about how things have changed uh, in pipes. Um, basically, in my lifetime, uh, let's say over the last 70 years, um, because things have changed quite a bit. Now, obviously, I wasn't smoking a pipe in the 50s or the 60s, but um, nonetheless, um, that's really the era of change. Um, pipes didn't change all that much from let's say the 30s through 1960. Um, they tended to be fairly similar. Um, there were a lot of great pipes that came out during that period. Uh, but um, it was really um, toward the end of the 50s that the pipe business and, and our tastes and pipes and pipe tobacco and all um, really started to evolve. And, and so that's what I want to talk about today. Uh, Scott, I, I don't know if, uh, if anybody else is having an issue hearing. Uh, I am, but that's because my ears screwed up. Uh, Oh, David says he's hearing fine. Okay. So, because of the technical difficulties that I had to deal with, um, that I've been fighting with, uh, it, this is not a fun morning. Uh, anyway, I'm still kind of playing catch up here. Uh, so, let me... Uh, get everything going for uh, what's happening on PNC, and we're going to um, we're going to have to do this manually once again. So um, you'll have to 
please bear with me this morning. I don't have any slides to show you. Um, but the first thing happening on PNC is uh, we have a sale on uh, Stanwell, Hans Christian Anderson, the sandblasted uh, models are 15% off. And uh, we just got more in. Uh, we were out of stock for a while. Uh, the factory finally um, shipped uh, a whole bunch. So they're under a hundred bucks. Now, you know, the Hans Christian Andersons are distinctly Danish uh, styled pipes and they come with two stems. They come with a church warden stem and a standard stem. They have been among uh, Stanwell's most popular uh, pipes uh, for decades. And um, we have had very little stock in, uh, in the last few years. So now that we're finally uh, getting some inventory, it's really great uh, to do something uh, for our customers who've been waiting. And uh, $92.99 for uh, Hans Christian Anderson, that's unheard of. Um, so that's uh, the pipe of the week, the, uh, the HCA Sandblast. And uh, yeah, all the models are covered, uh, whether they're unfiltered, nine millimeter filtered, they're, they're all $92.99. Now we have our bulkathon going on. Uh, this year we're doing it for two weeks. Um, the bulk tobaccos, um, uh, that we're talking about over 200 different varieties, as low as 232 an ounce. Uh, and some of them even have little bonuses. Uh, you might get um, PNC cash. Maybe there's uh, uh, a promotion with certain types that, you, that you're going to get some kind of an add-on. All of this is included uh, with prices starting at $2.32. I mean, that's it's pretty outrageous. And I'm sure some of your favorite boats are included. So uh, take a look. David says uh, that the HCA is a good deal. He thinks he paid over 100 like six years ago. Yeah. So, um, anyway, those, those are two great deals to, uh, to start with and the hits just keep on coming. Having, uh, an issue here. <laughs> it's been going on all morning folks. So, uh, I'm not too shocked. Let me see where we're at. Okay. Screen went dead. Don't worry about being late, Sean, because I got started late. Okay, so now 
The next thing is John Cotton's Double Pressed are all on sale. And uh, I think it's the lowest price I've seen this year. Uh, so all varieties are covered. Um, whether you're talking about the award-winning uh, John Cotton's Double Pressed Virginia, that um, that one uh, for Best Virginia Flake at the Chicagoland uh, show in 2019, or the Burley Dark Fire, the Creme, um, the New Glasgow, they're all on sale and it's a heck of a deal because uh, typically these are what, uh, $15.99 uh, a tin. Now they're only $14.63. So um, how can you possibly go wrong there? Yeah, $14.63, all seven varieties. We also have a sale that a lot of you are going to enjoy, and that is uh, Peter Stoke can be both tobaccos. Um, you can buy a one pound bag uh, for $32.50, which is a great deal. And on top of that, um, for an additional $10, you can get the bright red uh, ceramic Peter Stokeby tobacco jar to keep your bulk tobaccos in. Um, it is a beautiful cherry red jar, uh, and it has the Peter Stokeby logo on the front, uh, bail closure, so it's easy to get in and out of, but it seals nice and tight. Uh, and that's only 10 bucks. Those are the retail value is $50, but you can get one for only $10 when you buy any one pound bag of any Peter Stokeby tobacco. And then to um, wrap up, um, we have a fall tobacco sale. So we went through looking for fall flavors, pumpkin and, uh, and everything uh, that we associate with fall. Yeah, so uh, we, uh, we have picked out a bunch. Um, you know, looking for fall flavors, apple, that sort of thing. No, there's no turkey or gravy or stuffing flavors, but there are plenty of other uh, options that remind us of fall. And uh, Jack said, um, did he miss the Norman Rockwell pipe news? And that he also got the Red Jar deal. He likes it. Um, David says he likes Orchard Mist as a fall blend. Yeah, I mean, you know, we all, we all have our own concepts of, of what reminds us of fall. And, um, you know, probably the first thing that, that I think of in terms of fall flavors, um, are things like apple cider and all. And, and so we tried to pick flavors that uh, that are comforting and and warming and so um, they're all 
listed in um, the sale and there are some great deals in there. Uh, and this week's tobacco of the week is actually three tobaccos. Um, it is um, your choice of the East India Trading Company um, aromatic tobaccos. And these three blends, East India Trading Company is, um, uh, is a company owned by Gurkha. And um, so in the, you know, the, the wayfaring days of old and all, uh, East India Trading Company was one of the most powerful companies in the world. And, um, and so we decided, or they decided to go with a nautical theme and they figured for these three aromatics, um, again, because of the era and everything, they thought rum would be a great idea. So each one of those tobaccos has a rum in the flavor, uh, but then they, they diverge. Um, it might be uh, rum with a very creamy vanilla note. Um, there are three different varieties. And uh, if you haven't tried them and you're an aromatics fan, but you don't like the typical vanilla or cherry, uh, give these a shot. I think uh, you'll enjoy them quite a bit. And then uh, September's monthly deal is our pouch sale. So if uh, you're a person who uh, enjoys um, carrying your pouch, your uh, tobacco in pouches um, because you tend to lose nice leather pouches um, or you're always running around, a lot of times pouches just make sense. Or maybe your favorite blend just is a blend that comes in pouches. Uh, whatever it is, we've got a pouch sale going on, um, steep discounts, and, uh, and we cover pretty much every genre in um, the PNC pouch sale. So you're going to want to get on that. Um, and then finally, uh, for my uh, cigar clippings uh, for this week, um, what I have uh, come up with is is kind of uh, interesting because uh, I had an issue with my humidor and um, the solution was very simple and I didn't see it and uh, I should have caught it sooner, but I... I would refill my humidification device and it would maintain the set level. I use 67%. I don't like 70%. Uh, and it wasn't maintaining very well. Uh, it would drop down to 64 um, an hour after uh, it seemed fine. And I, I wasn't, I was having a hard time figuring out the problem. 
And then I started thinking of uh, dealing on a totally separate thing. I was dealing with a pipe with a loose stem. And I try always try to use the easiest answer first. And so what I, I typically do when I have a loose stem on a pipe is I take a Q-tip, dip it in water, and I swab the inside of the mortise a few times. Um, and it, it may take, you know, three, four applications, but just putting a little water in the... <clears throat> in the mortise and then letting the wood absorb it and swell up a little bit is the easiest answer. Yes, it's not the quickest answer, but it's the easiest answer and it's the most foolproof because if after everything it doesn't work, so you move on to another method. Uh, but I always try to, to use whatever it's going to answer the the problem the most simplistic way. This is not been a good morning. Uh, and, and so that's what I, I did. And as I was doing that, the light went on. And so I opened up my humidor and I grabbed some distilled water and the lip, when you close the lid, there's a, a, a cedar lip um, that's actually the, the insides of the humidor sticking up above the sidewall. And so when you close the lid, that lip seals. And I realized it's been a while since I has have seasoned my humidor. So what I did was I got a damp uh, cloth with distilled water and I went around and hit that lip and wet it two, three, four times. And then I closed the humidor and left it alone. And I came back a few hours later and opened it up and it was reading right at 67%. The, the wood in the lip had dried out, had shrunk down, and so air was moving in and out of my humidor. So that's my tip um, on cigars this week. Um, Sean says he's almost ready to start smoking some pumpkin spice. Yeah, David says apples and uh, cider are buried in this fall DNA. Well, yeah, anybody who lived in upstate New York, that's, you know, that's what you think of. Um, you know, I, I grew up in the uh, Albany, New York area, lived there until 10 years ago. And, uh, and, and that was a big thing. We used to... Uh, go to uh, orchards in the area up there, not only to pick apples, uh, but they would have, I mean, they would have events every weekend um, because just everybody um, who loves the outdoors and lives in upstate New York lives for fall. Uh, to see the foliage, um, the apple orchards, 
uh, and all the events that go on during the fall. It really is a beautiful time of year. Um, it used to be my favorite time of year. Now, as I get older, I, I think I enjoy the hot weather a little bit more, um, which is one of those things that was a, you know, we thought it was a, uh, uh, what amounted to a meme uh, about old people getting cold. Yeah, I find as I get older, I don't tolerate cold weather anywhere near as well as I used to. That covers uh, what's going on on PNC. And uh, oh, David says apple pies and sharp and extra sharp, sharp white cheddar. And for those of you who are think he's, thinking he's talking about enjoying a piece of apple pie or going someplace and getting a nice chunk of white cheddar uh, uh we're talking about taking slices of cheddar and putting it on top of the apple pie and warming it up i know to some people that's going to sound really gross we think uh warm apple pie and a scoop of vanilla ice cream until you've tried a really sharp cheddar melted on top of a slice of apple pie. You won't know what I'm talking about. But it definitely is one of those fall flavors um, that's hard to get out of your mind as, as you get older. Uh, first person that I ever, that I ever knew who did it, um, had worked in um, the food business for a number of years, working for dairy companies, and that's where he learned about it. And I tried it, and uh, I, I was just amazed that the the saltiness and the sharpness of the cheddar versus the sweet uh, flavor of the apples. Stunning, really. Buck says apple pie without cheese is like a kiss without a squeeze, is what my mom always said. Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's a big thing in, in certain areas uh, and, and, and not so much in others. Uh, certainly, states that are known for, um, for dairy and for apple orchards, that's, that's really where you get it. Um, the um so you're talking about new york and vermont um because both of them are known for their cheddar cheese and um they they certainly know uh plenty about uh uh about um apple orchards and and baking and everything else um there's a uh, there's a store in um wilmington vermont um it's a general story upper midwest too yeah wisconsin certainly is known for for cheese and they also uh have a lot of apple orchards up there too anyway we um uh, um, this general store 
very unassuming older building you know I, I would guess it was probably 1800s uh, wood building set back from the street they've got uh, parking in the back they've got uh, a couple of picnic tables out in front and all and you know it's what you think of um, in a kind of touristy area um, as a general store. They have candies, they have cold soda, um, they have all kinds of souvenirs, and uh, they have home decor, if you like, you know, very traditional um, 17, 1800s uh, type of decor. They have all kinds of stuff for sale. And the big thing is on the counter next to the register is a big wheel of cheddar cheese. And it's covered with a, you know, with a, a clear lid. And so if you want some, they pull the lid off and then they cut you off a chunk and weigh it. And, um, and it's not refrigerated. Um, and so the, the store is always, you know, room temperature. And uh, so by the time you get it, it's sweating just a little bit. And when it's at room temperature, uh, cheddar cheese goes from a, um, a four or a five to an 11. Um, the the sharpness and the tanginess of the cheddar just really hits you at room temperature. And um, that with a, a really well-made apple pie is just amazing. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting way off uh, the target. So what, um, what I, I wanted to talk about today is how things have changed since the 1950s uh, as far as pipes go. Now, if you, if you look at um, pictures from the 50s and uh, you see somebody smoking a pipe, Back then, bent pipes weren't as popular as straight. And also, bowls tended to be uh, smaller than what we, um, that what we tend to like today. If you talk about it, you talk about it in terms of Dunhill, uh, the old Dunhill sizes. <clears throat> You know, group two, group three was pretty much the, so the bowls tended to be smaller. Um, today, uh, typically the average uh, chamber size is about three quarters of an inch by whatever the depth is. Uh, and back then they leaned a little bit more toward uh, five eighths. Um, and David said, often with a trilby or fedora on as well as a slender, smaller pipe. 
in a sports coat and tie. Uh, now we got we got to go further than that. My father always wore a fedora, a suit, and tie going to work. Um, uh, he would meticulously polish his shoes. Um, and uh, during the the cold weather, he had a knee-length um, wool winter coat that went over the top. Uh, and when the weather was cool but not cold, or if it was rainy, a London fog trench coat. Uh, my, my father was a sharp dresser. Um, in fact, he used to go to a tailor to get his suits. Um, and um, he always had a pipe. And um, yeah, a smaller, more slender pipe. Um, thin shanks were, were very popular back then. Um, and really that was, that was kind of the uniform of the day. Um, but one thing happened in the 1950s that, that um, changed things. And, and part of that was when Herman G. Lane, um, the gentleman um, who founded the American um, version of Lane Limited because they started in Germany. But in the 1930s, he, he moved to the U.S. And, and moved his company's operation to New York City. And they were in the city for uh, many, many years. Uh, I uh, interviewed with Lane in the 1970s um, at their offices in New York City. And, even, and back then, they were actually making Captain Black uh, in New York City, in, uh, be, in behind their offices. You went from these very nice New York City offices through a set of double doors and you were in tobacco manufacturing. It was, it was kind of neat. But he brought um, pipe, certain pipes to the U.S. and one of the lines that he brought was Sheridan. And Sheraton was the first company that I can think of that really started bringing deeper chambers into and, and larger chambers into the mix. Um, I have over here in my cabinet a, uh, a straight Dublin uh, Sheraton with the comfort bit, double comfort bit. Uh, which was a, a, a saddle bit that had two steps uh, so that the, the bit area was even thinner. And um, it's not a huge pipe, but it's got a seven-eighths chamber. And that was a big difference. It was the first um, name brand in the U.S. to commonly come in in larger shapes with larger chambers. And um, 
Sheraton kind of introduced the larger uh, pipe. And then as you go through the 50s and into the 60s, um, the Danish Revolution began. So we started seeing pipes from Stanwell uh, coming into the U.S. And although they were not larger uh, pipes, uh, with the exception of freehands, um, the Danes did more with bent pipes. And so instead of maybe 70% of the business being straight pipes and 30% being bent, um, it gradually started to change. And we recently did a lookup on some lines of our pipes. And in some cases, it's closer to 80% bent, 90% bent uh, in certain brands. Um, so it, it's really kind of stunning um, to, to see the changes in that regard. So today's pipe today would be considered not long, but big and chunky as compared to uh, what you smoked and what you would have smoked in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, and the reason I didn't answer um, the question about the Norman Rockwell pipe earlier is um, you will see it shortly now. Um, the packaging has arrived. And so now all we have to do is put everything together and, um, and get it live on the website. And this is very, very typical of the pipes from the 1950s. Um, what we did in working with Stanwell and uh, the folks from Norman Rockwell Estate on this was we, we took a look at a number of different um, illustrations that, uh, that Rockwell did. And I say illustrations because he did not consider himself a painter or an artist. He considered himself an illustrator. And, uh, and so in um, his triple self portrait, he was pictured with a slender shank, um, a slender shank, a straight billiard. And the, um, the pipe was, well, by that, even by those standards, maybe a hair long, um, because typically, you know, a straight billiard with a, a thin shank and a smaller chamber, um, you, you were probably looking at uh, five and a half inches, five and a quarter inches, maybe a little bit longer. Um, but then you had a number of pipes like the merchant service pipes that were quite long. Um, and it looked to me in looking at the triple self portrait that, um, 
it was a pencil shank billiard that probably was around six inches long. So we uh, looked at all the models of, um, of pipes in the Stanwell line to try to come up with one as close to it as possible. And they have a um, straight billiard uh, called the 107. And it is a thin shanked billiard. Um, the chamber is, you know, average in diameter, but it's not a tall bowl. Um, it's good for probably about and half a half an hour to 40 minute smoke with the typical tobaccos. Um, but it was only five and a half inches long and uh, Rockwell's pipe in the image definitely seemed bigger than that. Um, so we, uh, we worked with the factory to see if they could turn the 107 into a six inch long pipe, which they did. And uh, they sent the sample, which which I have right here. The only thing about this sample is that you notice there's no uh, Stanwell Crown S stamped on the shank. Um, the, the production models do have the stamp on the shank. Um, it's gonna come in two finishes. You can see this is a, a gloss mahogany uh, stain. And, and that was a very popular uh, finish uh, back in the day. And it also comes as a black sandblast. And um, these will be available shortly, but this is very typical of what you would have seen in the 1950s and 1960s. You could picture Hugh Beaumont uh, at the door uh, in Leave It to Beaver with his straight billiard. Um, so that was very popular. Now we get into the 60s. And uh, one of the first changes is beside Danish pipes having more bent shapes, they also introduced the freehand pipe. Um, for the most part, uh, you know, when you're talking about grain in uh, an older pipe, most uh, pipes were made to have cross grain. So they would uh, take the block and before they would uh, cut the shape, um, they would wet the block to see which direction the grain ran in. And they would try to orient it so that if you were looking at someone face on smoking a pipe, the bird's eye would be on the sides of the pipe and you'd have cross grain on the front and the back of the bowl. And um, a lot of companies were known for their cross grains. Peterson uh, was definitely huge with cross grains. And uh, GBD um, had a lot of cross grains typically. And um, 
occasionally you'd find a pipe that had uh, straight grain or they would have um, flame grain. But for the most part, factory pipes were made with cross grain. And then over in Denmark, somebody had the brilliant idea of taking a block of wood and looking at the grain and carving the shape to suit the grain of the block. And thus the Danish freehand was born. Um, and they rarely had um, symmetrical shapes. They were always a bit uh, asymmetrical. And a lot of times they would leave the plateau, the bumpy outer um, surface, uh, they would leave that intact on the top of the bowl and sometimes on the end of the shank, depending on how the grain of that block grew. And they also had um, <coughs> bigger bowls, bigger chambers, and mostly all of them were bent. And so as the Danish revolution took root in the U.S., we saw pipes start gradually getting bigger. And um, also they gradually uh, started leaning more toward bent. And uh, again, today, um, the majority of the pipes we sell are bent. Um, but that certainly was not the case up until about the 1970s. And that's when we started seeing um, more people smoking bent pipes. Um, my father would always have one or maybe two bent pipes, but everything else was straight. Now, why was that? And why the smaller bowls? Here's my conjecture. Um, back then, you could smoke pretty much anywhere. Um, you, my father would go into work um, and get some behind his desk. And on his desk was an ashtray and a pipe rack and his can of tobacco. And so once he would get settled in and uh, start uh, getting working, I mean, he didn't have to boot up his computer. Uh, he would read reports and he'd have to work with a physical spreadsheet. Uh, but while he was doing that, he would pack a pipe and he would light up. And because he went for the straight pipes of the day um, and he would clench while, uh, while working, um, the pipes had to be smaller and lighter uh, to get away with that. And so my, my thought on it is the reason that pipes of the day were smaller and thinner shanked um, was because you didn't have to go a long period of time. You know, you go for a bigger bowl, um, 
you go take a take a break and you sit down or you go sit down after work and you're looking to really kick back and relax so you want 45 minutes uh to an hour uh where you can can just light up and and not think about much of anything well back then smoking was something you did while you were doing everything else um and it was because at that time you could smoke pretty much everywhere uh thinking back to when i was a kid about the only place you couldn't smoke was um in church i mean even hospitals allowed smoking uh, i i remember us going to visit people in the hospital and the person in the bed had an ashtray on the end table you think about it today and we can't we can't even fathom that but back then um most people smoked and they did it wherever um uh, I, I remember as a kid, the supermarket at the end of every um, half aisle, because, you know, most, most uh, supermarkets today have aisles that run the entire depth of the store. But um, back then it was very common to have the aisle go the entire depth of the store with a break in the middle to make it easier to zigzag through some stores still have that design but not as many as used to and um at the end of the break in every aisle they had those floor stand ashtrays so you could be walking around and doing your grocery shopping and have your pipe and if you needed to dump your pipe, there was an ashtray there, or you light up a cigarette, and the ashtray was at the end of each half aisle. Um, and so for that reason, I think that's, that's part of the reason why um, smaller, lighter pipes were uh, in terms of bowl size were the the rule of the day because it wasn't like you weren't going to be able to light up again for two three four hours you could light up whenever you wanted so if you had a 20 minute smoke well that's fine then you go half an hour and you pack another bowl light up and again a lot of people clenched so you needed those lighter pipes as time went on, more bent pipes came around, larger pipes came around, and that really um, that really changed everything. Um, because at the same time as this was happening, you started seeing smoking bans. Um, uh, you know, among the first places to to cut out smoking were hospitals. Um, although when my second oldest daughter was born, um, the, um, the obstetrician came out, uh, after the delivery of, of my, my daughter, 
and he went behind the nurse's station and lit up a cigar. Um, but it got, you know, started out no smoking in patient rooms. So you could go to the waiting area. Um, and if, you know, you were visiting a patient, if they were ambulatory and they could go to the waiting room, they could go there and smoke. But it wasn't too long after that, that all of a sudden it was no smoking there. Then it became no smoking in stores. Hell, when I started in the tobacco business, working in a mall store in the 1970s, uh, we, you could smoke anywhere in the mall. And it wasn't until the mid to late 1980s that uh, they started uh, phasing out smoking in stores and malls and, and that sort of thing. Um, and the restrictions got tighter. You know, you, if you were at the mall, you couldn't smoke um, in the store. Uh, so you'd have to go outside for a break and uh, so for that reason when you got a chance to smoke there was a tendency to want to smoke for a little bit longer so uh, maybe after work what you would do is you know get together with a couple of guys and go to a bar and everybody would be smoking and then and as time went on, all of a sudden restaurants and bars uh, stopped. And, and that made things even obviously more difficult. So, um, you know, people now today mostly smoke at home, smoke at the car, in the car, um, and smoke outdoors. You know, Sean says, wish we were still in those times smoking at the desk or anywhere you want. Um, when when our new um, facilities are finished, uh, we will once again be able to smoke um, in our building because we have to evaluate products. Um, but in the building that we're using temporarily, there's no smoking. So... Uh, you know, yeah, it, it's, it, it really is a different time and especially for pipe smokers because, you know, smoking a pipe for 10 minutes just doesn't do it. You haven't even uh, felt the effects of the nicotine in 10 minutes. Uh, you, it doesn't get to you until after your break is over. Um, Secondhand smoke killed the ability to smoke anywhere. Uh, other people ruining it for a person. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, really, that is the issue, secondhand smoke. Um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, movies and TV shows are a great way to uh, see the uh, style of pipes of the day. Um, yeah, go back and, and watch uh, some older movies and you really get a good idea of what was popular at the time. Uh, Sean says nowadays it's a question where uh, where he can smoke, not where he can't. Uh, yeah, 
And David says he's even heard that in PA they're trying to stop smoking, even in cigar shops, etc. Yes, they are. I found out about that yesterday. Um, fortunately enough, there's enough uh, tobacco-oriented businesses uh, in the state. Uh, and it brings in enough tax revenue that I think we may be able to dodge that bullet. Um, at least uh, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, at the very least uh, they, they modify that bill um, to uh, if, if a place sells the product and that's the majority of their business they should be able to allow smoking. Now, what will that mean? Um, if they do pass that law, that means that um, stores are going to all of a sudden wind up with a lot more retail space because they won't have lounges anymore. There, there won't be any need. You know, maybe they'll cut their lounge size in half and it's just a place where you go to sit and, and shoot the, you know, with uh, with the the other folks. Um, but you won't be able to do it while having a cigar. Uh, so that'll probably turn into selling space or maybe it'll, you know, be storage. But um We'll all deal with it in our own way. Um, David says a lot more tobacco-oriented businesses in PA than most people understand. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're based in PA. Um, off the top of my head, I can think of uh, two or three other online retailers who are based in Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, we, you know, there used to be House of Windsor. Uh, they're, they're long gone, but uh, they were based in PA. John Middleton started in, in PA. And so, um, yes, uh, the tobacco business means quite a bit to uh to pennsylvania so i'm i'm hoping that there's enough influence to uh, dodge that bullet uh sean says he loves codger pipes and tobacco from way back got got 14 ounce tins of 1965 kentucky club smoked as well as in the 1960s um david says at one time there were over 120 different tobacco makers uh just in around uh, fry I, I i there there were tons i mean um red lion uh pennsylvania i think had like 12 cigar uh factories uh in that that one town alone um and and obviously that has all changed now in terms of the tobaccos um the tobaccos of the day primarily in the 50s and 60s were 
Codger blends and Latakia blends or interestingly enough combinations of the, of the two. Um, the blend my father smoked for many years was fundamentally a burly blend, um, but it contained uh, a bit of deer tongue and it also contained some Latakia. So it had an aromatic quality to it, but not overly aromatic. Um, and the Latakia wasn't as noticeable in the aroma, the room note, um, but you could definitely taste it in the blend. And um, that were something like uh, a half and half of Prince Albert, Sir Walter Raleigh, uh, these typical over-the-counter blends were the, you know, the rule of the day, uh, unless you had a local tobacconist, and then you may smoke one of their house blends. Um, David says he likes Burley with Latakia, yeah. Um, but the thing is, you know, what we consider today English blends, which they weren't called that back then. Um, but, you know, the typical um, Latakia-based blend back then would have maybe 20% Latakia or less. Uh, and the the tinned tobaccos, which were the, more the exception than the rule, and you were kind of looked at as being uh, high class if you uh, you know if you smoked Dunhill. Um, and some of those European, especially European, uh, Latakia blends. Uh, started, you know, some of them had a little bit more, maybe 25% Latakia, uh, maybe 30. Uh, then, it, you know, everything went off the rails. And by the time you got into the 70s and 80s, you had companies making blends that were half Latakia. My particular feeling on Latakia is that it's, it's like pepper. Um, you know, if you, uh, if you put pepper on something, um, you, you have to be judicious in the use. Um, if I put a few cracks of fresh black pepper on a burger as I'm just finishing cooking it, um, uh, you know, you know, it's there but it becomes part of the burger. Uh, if you go nuts and you, you know, crack the, the uh, pepper mill five, six times on top of it, now all of a sudden it intrudes on the flavor of the meat. So to me, uh, I'm not, uh, you know, I, having come up through that time, I'm not a lat bomb kind of guy. I really like 20 to 30% Latakia. Um, 
if I have enough Orientals. If I don't have enough Orientals in the blend, uh, I tend to reduce the amount of Latakia too, because Orientals can balance to some degree the Latakia. Um, Sean says old Tabacchiana. Um, it's something he's interested in. We should sell some tin signs, paper ads, posters to frame. You know, your man cave stuff, you know, it's a really good idea. Uh, the problem is the market is small and the minimum quantities on some of that stuff would be rather high. Um, but it's a good idea, and it's something that I'll, I'll run by the um, by the crew. Maybe what we can do is uh, see if we can find um, ads from uh, you know the fifties and 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 the sixties that feature uh, pipes and pipe tobacco. And um, and maybe have some posters made or, or something like that. Good thought. Uh, I like that sort of stuff too. So um, that's why a lot of a lot of people uh, uh, think that an antiquing is basically you know something that women like to do. Men like to go on the antiquing trips uh, with their wives too because a lot of times you don't know you find uh, three or four dunhills that they want 10 bucks for um so antiquing isn't such a terrible thing for guys either um david says it's condiment not as much as say perique but all tobacco is the best when balanced definitely agree with that uh david uh, but but um, you know burley blends uh, and um, and English blends, and then the inevitable combination of the two, which we now call uh, an American English, because it contains burley or an aromatic English, uh, if it has an aromatic quality, but. Um, but they they were very common like i said my father's blend was uh a, a lot of the um the old codger blends would have a whisper of latakia in there maybe five percent maybe three percent enough that you knew it was there uh but it was part of the whole rather than being a drumbeat or something jumping out at you it was there but it was part of the entire experience uh, rather than being the star um david says pa is great for antiques oh yeah and, and new england especially um he'd love to find some old lighters and ashtrays yeah uh justin said yeah absolutely love barking dog barking dog was uh an otc blend that that contains some latakia so yeah um they they were they were notable um and you know i've tried to do some of those kind of blends uh for nostalgia purposes in in my own lines um 
Jack says his wife picked him up a, a nice large Weber billiard for 14 bucks in the yard sale. Um, David says, uh, you know, like Chestnut and Edward G. Robinson. Again, Codger blends with Latakia. Um, but as we got into the 1960s, aromatics started becoming more popular. And uh, I, I think that was uh, a combination of things. Um, it was taking the mildly aromatic blends, um, the codger blends of the day, um, the half and halves and uh, the Sir Walter Raleigh's, you know, half and half was um, flavored with spices. Uh, still, it still is. Uh, and it would contain um, uh, cardamom and um, mace. Uh, and no, we're not talking about the um, the pepper spray, or we're not talking about uh, the big uh, metal ball at the end of the handle with uh, spikes on it. Uh, we're talking about the outer coating. Uh, of um, uh, of the nutmeg or the um, not sorry not nutmeg allspice. Uh, so you take the allspice and the outer shell. Um, you grind that and, and it's mace. And it's so half and half. You sweet warm spices. Um, uh, coriander was included. And, and so it had a pleasant aromatic quality, but it wasn't the dominant thing. Um, it was pleasant, but in the background, Sir Walter Raleigh was more liquors. Um, uh, yeah, he thinks the aromatics starting to be more popular was an attempt to keep the room no more tolerable. And that was, that was the idea. Um, so as we got into the 1960s, um, blends started including more noticeable flavors. Um, vanilla blends would start to crop up, but it was around 1970 that everything started taking off. Um, the later 60s into the 70s is when we saw Borkham Riff uh, all of a sudden uh, come into the U.S. And then Captain Black was born. And so it just took the over-the-counter blends and took them up a level by um, increasing the amount of added flavor uh, so that it would produce a really pleasant room note. Um, and one of the things that led to that was the discovery of, uh, or the, the more widespread use of steamed black Cavendish because it could hold a ton of uh, flavorings. And so uh, when Captain Black came around with a good amount of Black Cavendish and a distinctly vanilla caramel type note, um, that changed everything. And from there, 
it exploded and uh, all the bulk tobaccos, the Peter Stokeby tobaccos, um, significant, significant uh, amounts of flavor and that they dominate the market today. Um, they are at least about 90% of the tobacco market. Um, but you're seeing more of the, um, the, the niche tobaccos today, um, where straight Virginia's Virginia Perites were really had to go to specialty stores to, to get more of those, you know, you get back in the day, the three nuns and stuff like that, but not, not the typical tobacco shop didn't carry those. Um, they, they maybe had some bulks and they had all the OTC stuff. Uh, but you started seeing more of that in the seventies where, um, specialty tobacco shops would start carrying more of things like that and, um, uh, and truced and, and sale and, uh, and now aromatics dominate. Um, but, um, the beauty of it is, all different styles are available out there today. Uh, David says uh, Stanwell did uh, a lot of aromatics. Yeah, now they're down to two, uh, but there used to be five or six um, in the lineup, maybe seven. Um, Sean says, right, no one usually hears bad comments of pipe smoke like you do cigars. Absolutely. So anyway, um, that covers what I wanted to uh, talk about the uh, the differences in old pipes and old uh, tobaccos and what's going on today. So um, anyway, I've run over uh, time, even with especially with the late start. I'm terribly sorry about that. Um, I am having problems here in the house with my Wi-Fi, so uh, I'm I'm trying to solve that. I'm probably going to have to call my supplier and have them come out. Um, sometimes I have to try signing in 15 or 20 times before um, things are stable. So it's just horrible. Uh, that's uh, that's enough for one week, and I, I hope you find this enjoyable. I believe next week we're planning on having uh, Kane, so um, this will be our second installment with him. And uh, uh, the beauty of that is I don't have to worry about a topic. I leave it up to him. Uh, I ask him to pick a, tom a topic, and the the questions he wants to ask and that leads to the discussion and i really enjoy that and um uh and, th and thank you david for uh, for the uh, good wishes you had this ear thing i don't i don't know what happened uh, I'll, I'll just briefly tell you a few days ago uh i went to bed uh, got up the next morning and um, 
I felt pressure in my right ear. And I noticed that my hearing was really, really subdued in there. So um, I got up. I had to get myself together and get out to work. I couldn't pay much attention to it. Um, but, you know, I'm spending the day turning my head so that my left ear was facing toward people so I could hear what they were saying. And um, when I got home, I did what I could to try to, to uh, clean my ear out. And I got some wax, but it didn't, it didn't solve the problem. So I'm thinking, you know, I, I know I can hear, but it's muffled. It's like I held a pillow over my ear. And um, so I was wondering what the heck was going on. Um, but it wasn't, um, yes, uh, it, David mentioned tinnitus. I, I'm getting some ringing in that ear. And um, I'm wondering what the heck the problem is. So before going to urgent care or something like that and having to deal with a big copay, I figure I'll try the safe over-the-counter answer. So they have your drops and it's... Um, uh, it's it's a uh, a solution that foams, so you you put drops in your ear, and you can if you've got hearing obviously in that ear, you're going to hear what sounds like somebody crinkling cellophane um, because the bubbles are are popping in there, and that helps to loosen up wax. And uh, I did it. And it seemed to get better, uh, but I got up the next morning and it was still not right. So um, the um, that evening when I got home, I figured I'm going to do it one more time and see what happens. So I put drops in my ear, and um, I hear the foaming and everything, and. Um, so, and this was last night. And so uh, I, I take a, a soft cloth and, you know, dry my ear off. And then I can hear. All of a sudden I can hear better. And, and it's great. And I take the cloth and look at it. And there's some blood on the cloth. So... What I'm guessing is that I have a, something in there. Maybe there was a, uh, I don't know, but somehow somewhere in the ear, not in the canal and not in the outer portion of the ear, but somewhere in between, something opened up and I bled into my ear. Now, I don't want to gross people out, but that's the reason why I couldn't hear because the blood got in there, it dried, and um, it, it blocked my hearing. 
And so the, the, the droughts loosened it up, but it kept bleeding and it, it still is doing it a little, a little bit. So I'm kind of freaking out. So I'm dealing with that. And I'm also dealing with wonky internet. So my apologies. And uh, hopefully by next week, this stuff is all in the past. Anyway, I'm Russ Willett from PipesandCigars.com. Thanks for watching.